Hello, everyone. As always, a pleasure and an honor uh, to be sharing God's word with you. Uh, this week's lesson, my name is Jacob Wearson, by the way. This week's lesson, we are reading through the book of Amos. It's a small book uh, from the prophet Amos in the Old Testament. Uh, we're going to be discussing that today. And as you get your Bibles open to the book of Amos, if you want to reference that, we're going to be quickly going through um, that entire book, those nine chapters. Let me open us up with a word of prayer. Let me pray for us as we prepare to meet God in his word. Uh, Heavenly Father, we just come before you and we ask you, Lord, um, we thank you, first of all and foremost, and we praise you for who you are, for what you've done, Lord, especially as we enter in the culmination and the end of this Christmas season, God, we thank you for Christmas. We thank you for this time that we can share with family and friends. But oftentimes, Lord, Christmas and this whole season brings together a sense of anxiety and worry for a lot of us, Lord. I just pray for whatever burden that we're bringing right now at this moment. Um, maybe we're thinking about the future and it brings us anxiety. Maybe we're thinking about our own past with, our, with its many failures and poor choices. Uh, maybe we're just feeling the burdens and expectations of who we should be and who we are. God, I pray that you would just silence all of that. Lord, that you would be who you came to be, which is our burden bearer. Clear our hearts, clear our minds, Lord, and and share with us what you have for us in this book of Amos and especially prepare our hearts um, for your son, Lord. And um, as we celebrate you coming down, you taking that first step to reconcile us to you. And Lord, may that peace that you promise be ours during this crazy season of life. And I thank you, Lord. And, and, and may that be evident as we discuss um, the book of Amos today. And we pray all these things in your son's great name. Amen. Amen. All right. So we are in Amos today. And I'm going to actually start today's lecture a little differently. It's going to be a little bit of a review of what we talked about last week as we read through the book of Jonah. We were in Jonah last week. And maybe also some themes that we've been reading about um, throughout this year in this uh, study of Kingdom Divided that BSF has been taking us through. So if you remember last week, Jonah, right, we read about this wayward prophet who was called to preach God's judgment on the Ninevites, but also God's call of repentance to the Ninevites, which is uh, a um, city outside of Judah and Israel. And Jonah hears that call from God, and Jonah runs. Jonah runs 100 miles an hour in the opposite direction uh, of God's call. And it just made me think as we were reading through Jonah, um, you know, God's judgment on Nineveh, then God pursuing Jonah, and then ultimately God's relenting. He, he prevents his judgment and wrath from being carried out on the Ninevites. Uh, it just made me think we've been really studying through many themes um, throughout Kingdom Divided and just jotted down a few themes that we've been studying this year. Um, one of them has been God's perfect, holy nature and character, his perfection, his holiness, uh, the reality of our sin and how we all fall short of God's glory, right? Time and time again, we see God's own chosen people in Judah and Israel running from God, running from God's will and choosing to follow pagan gods in their own ways and their own actions. And then also um, the reality of God's wrath and judgment of sin, how God does not allow sin to go unpunished. Again, we saw that in Jonah. God pronounces his judgment on Nineveh. Uh, he wanted to use Jonah as that prophet to declare God's message to the Ninevites. Uh, Jonah runs, but as Jonah runs, we see something amazing. And I think we see another theme that emerges. It's the reality that God pursues his people. God pursues sinful people. Think about it, right? 
the Ninevites, who were a sinful, rebellious people who wreaked havoc, by the way, on God's own people, a people that didn't even worship the one true God. The Ninevites did not worship God. They worshiped pagan gods. God saw fit to pursue them, to warn them of his righteous judgment, and to give them time to repent, which he does. And he relents his judgment. And he does that for Jonah as well. Jonah, who should have known better, runs in the opposite direction of God's call, and God pursues him. God pursues Jonah. You know, it just made me think, I don't know where you are in your walk of faith. Maybe you're someone who has known the Lord for a long time. You're someone who would call yourself a seasoned believer. Maybe you're a brand new Christian. You recently came to the faith. Maybe you're in the middle of it and you're struggling through your walk with Christ. Uh, Maybe you're a seeker. Maybe you're somebody who is unsure about Jesus and who he claims to be. And I don't know where you are right now in that journey of faith, but I think there's one thing that we can't miss as we read Jonah, as we've been reading through this kingdom divided study, but also especially as we read through Amos again, that God pursues the lost and the wandering to bring them into a loving relationship with him. God pursues the lost and wandering to bring them into a loving relationship with him. And I think we have to think and we have to just ponder how would our lives be different if we contemplated that the God of the universe pursues me, wants me to be his child by faith? How would that transform the way that I lived? How would that change the way that I thought about myself, the way that I thought about others? That God pursues me. That is the ultimate and true heart of God. So let's dive into that. Let's see where we see that throughout Amos. Uh, Our lesson and BSF breaks Amos into three divisions, and our lesson really kind of nicely breaks up the book of Amos in this helpful way. It's three divisions. Uh, The first division is Amos chapters 1 and 2, which is God's indictment of nations. There's eight nations that God really uh, indicts in in those first two chapters. There's God's indictment of Israel. That's the second division, which is Amos chapters 3 all the way up to chapter 9, verse 10. God's indictment, specific indictment of Israel. And then uh, Division 3, which is Amos chapter 9, it's the last five verses, verses 11 through 15, which is God's promised restoration. So those three divisions, we're going to talk about them in a little bit more. And I think here's a good big main idea for us to grasp uh, and understand is that despite humanity's rebellion, God calls sinners to rescue and relief through his son Jesus. That despite humanity's rebellion, God calls sinners to rescue and relief through his son, Jesus. We're going to hear a lot about God's judgment. We're going to hear a lot about uh, God's um, uh, uh, justice. But we also need to remember that the hope we have is the hope through Jesus Christ. It's that we have rescue and relief through his son, Jesus. So let's read about that a little bit more. Well, as we open in and we dive into this first division, division one, which is God's indictment of the nation— of the nations, of eight nations in these first two chapters. Um, the, the book of Amos gives us a little bit of perspective and some context about who Amos is. Uh, Amos is a prophet, um, but he's actually first and foremost a shepherd from Tekoa, uh, and he is actually called to preach um, God's message of judgment specifically to the northern kingdom of Israel. Again, we're in this kingdom divided study. You have the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Amos is called to go to Israel to preach God's message of judgment and repentance. God also is calling Israel to repent, to turn from their wicked ways and to come back to him. But first, God calls 
aim us to do, really just this general um, indictment of, of several nations. It's actually eight nations. Six of them are not Israel and Judah. So six of them are surrounding pagan nations. Um, so basically what we're going to do, because there's, this is a lot of ground to cover, we're going to go briefly through each of the nations that God calls out. Um, and then we're going to briefly um, understand the sin um, and mention the sin that God is calling out each of these nations for. And then we'll dive into our principle for this first division. All right, eight nations. Are you ready to go? So the first, um, the first nation that God calls out through the prophet Amos is, the na- is Damascus. And God calls out Damascus for the threshing of Gilead or, the, or their violence of Gilead. So that's the first nation is Damascus. The second nation is Gaza, who took whole c- captive whole communities and actually sold their captives to the nation of Edom. Um, Tyre is another nation that God calls out through Amos. They also took whole communities and sold them to Edom. Uh, so again, they're taking captive uh, people and they're actually selling them. Um, so God calls them out for that sin. God calls out Edom um, for Edom's anger, rage, and violence that went unchecked. Uh, then they were, that they had, they really operated with no compassion. They ruled with a sword. Uh, Amen, very similar, a very gruesome and violent picture actually in verse 13 of them expanding their borders. It's very gruesome. It's very violent. Um, he calls out Moab for the burning bones of Edom's king. So all those first six nations, which are surrounding nations, um, they're um, uh, pagan nations. God is calling them out for their violence, specifically their wicked wars that they wage on one another uh, and really their lack of mercy and compassion. God calls out those uh, surrounding nations for that. And then we see a little bit of a shift because God also uses Amos to call out um, his people through it, Judah and Israel. So we move, we move from these six surrounding nations to the to Judah and Israel. So the southern kingdom of Judah, God calls them out for rejecting the law of the Lord and being led astray by false gods. Again, this is God's people that God is calling out. Now he's saying, all right, I'm calling out these nations for their violence. Now you, my people, I'm, I'm calling you out for your rejection of my law and being led astray by false gods. Very similar with the nation of Israel, um, God calls out um, the kingdom of Israel for also their worship of false gods, but also a multitude of other sins, which we're really going to dive into in this next division. Um, They oppress the poor. Um, Israel mishandles justice, sexual perversion, the hating of God's prophets, revelry and debauchery in the temple. God really lays it on for the kingdom of Israel. So you have those eight nations, various sins those six nations really about the violence and lack of mercy and compassion that they have for one another, their wicked wars. Judah and Israel abandoning the law of God, specifically Israel oppressing the poor, mishandling justice, sexual perversion, and the hating of God's prophets. All right, lots of judgment, lots of harsh truth being laid out here in these first two chapters of the book of Amos. What's a principle that we can learn from this first section? I think the first principle that we've got here is that God justly judges all sin. God justly judges all sin. I know about you, but as we were reading through the Old Testament this year, um, we, we saw a lot of judgment specifically on Judah and Israel. It's very clear to us how Judah and Israel have abandoned and walked away from God's law and what God thinks about that. Of course, God lays his truth bare and says, I will 
call upon judgment on both of you for abandoning my my laws and abandoning my ways. But I also wonder, what did God think of the other surrounding nations that oftentimes wreaked violence, not not just with one another, but specifically on God's people of Judah and Israel? Well, God makes it very clear, right? And Amos makes very clear that God sees all sin, not just Israel and Judah's sin, not his own people's sin, but all sin. And no skin goes un no sin, excuse me, goes unpunished. No sin goes unscathed. No matter the nation, all of it is seen by God. I think it's an interesting fulfillment of Proverbs eleven twenty one, which says that assuredly the evil man will not go unpunished, but the descendants of the righteous will be delivered. Isaiah thirteen eleven says, Thus I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will also put an end to the arrogance of the proud and abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. God despises sin in all of its forms, no matter the nation, no matter the people. God despises sin, and all sin goes uh, does not uh, no sin, excuse me, goes unseen by God, and all sin um, will need to be held to account, and it, w- it will need to be judged. So we read, right, in these first two chapters that God detests the violence of these outside nations, um, the brutal murders of their enemies, the way they expanded their borders in grotesque ways, how they showed no mercy to one another. Our God values life, and he detests the indiscriminate violence and the shameful play for power that these nations displayed. And again, with Israel and Judah, more specifically, how they abandoned the laws of the Lord and and followed after their own pagan and their uh, pagan gods and false gods. Now, the reality of God's judgment certainly, I think, it's a natural response. It, it terrifies us when we understand God's infinite justice and infinite mercy. And we can't, our imperfect brains can't possibly understand what perfect holiness and perfect judgment look like because there is no example for us on this earth for perfect judgment and perfect holiness except God, except. Right, ultimately Jesus. But still, our, our, our brains can't comprehend what perfect justice and holiness look like. Um, and so there's a natural response here for our finite um, beings to, to really get terrified when we hear about God's judgment and the reality that God does not – God sees all sin. God sees all justice and wickedness. But I think actually for us believers, for those who call ourselves followers, followers of Christ, um, we should actually be assured in some ways and actually – be comforted about God's justice and holiness. Why do I say that? Well, first of all, and we're going to talk about this towards the end. As believers, as people who have come to faith in Christ in repentance and trust, we can be assured that we're never going to be judged for our sin. Our sin has already been taken care of on the cross of Christ. That's the whole point of the gospel. That's the whole point of Jesus coming was he takes away our sin and he gives us full forgiveness. So that's one way we can be assured that we're not going to experience the judgment of God because our sin has already been dealt with at the cross. But in another way, you know, we look at, you know, as believers and we look at the world around us and we just, we go, what is going on? We look at the injustice of this world. We look at those who are defenseless or who are voiceless, who are taken advantage of. We, we look at the world around us and think, man, the good guys always lose and the bad guys seem to always get away with it and always win. This breaks our heart naturally. But we have to know, we have to be assured that God is the God of true justice and no sin, no evildoer or oppressor will be left out of that judgment. 
And that and that's so assuring for us in a world filled with such great injustice, right? That means that those who are unjustly oppressed, those who are defenseless, those who are brutally taken advantage of, those who are mistreated or abused, whether it's whole nations who are carrying this out on a systemic level or individual people in places of power who, who carry this out, who carry these wicked ways out, God makes all things right. This should give us assurance that in the face of great injustice in this world where it feels like as if those who do wicked things get away with it, we can be assured that God, not sit in wickedness, not injustice, but God and his justice always have the last word. And we can worship and thank God that he is a God of perfect justice, that he is a God um, of perfect holiness. And he doesn't let sin go. And in a world of great injustice, we can, we can thank God that he is a God of great justice. It also means, more importantly too, it also means that each of us has a personal res- responsibility for our sin and for our actions. We all have to bring an account to God for that. Right, what, this, this sounds a little ominous and certainly a little scary. Let's unpack that because, again, as I mentioned, we're reading about God's justice, but we also need to remember God is a God of infinite mercy and grace. There is hope. There's always hope. So what does that mean? We, no sin goes unpunished, right? We all have personal responsibility um, for what we've done. Let's unpack that a little bit more. Stay with me. I promise you I will not leave you there. So let's dive, dive into that a little bit more into our second division here as we transition here in Amos chapter 3 all the way up to chapter 9 and verse 10, which is God's specific indictment of Israel. So the first two chapters, God indicts these nations. He, he through Amos, Amos calls out eight, eight nations. Now we're focusing specifically on the northern kingdom of Israel. This is God's chosen people that God is focusing on here. And, and he just lays out tons of judgment on Israel. And he, 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 lays, he lays it out here. And let's Let's um, dive into this. And this is a big portion of scripture, so we're not going to have time um, to really cover all of this. Um, But um, we can at least, as we did in that first section, we can at least talk through um, what are some overarching things, what are the big things that we see out in this section as as a helpful summary for us. We think first and foremost, let's identify some of the sins that God um, lays out on Israel. So the first sin that I see here from these chapters is Israel's false worship. We see that in Amos chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, where God, through Amos, says, Go to Bethel and sin. Go to Gilgal and sin yet more. Bring your sacrifices every morning. Bring your tithes. Burn leavened bread as a thank offering and brag about your free will offerings. Boast about them, you Israelites, because this is what you love to do, declares the sovereign Lord. What a powerful indictment on Israel. See, the fact of the matter is Israel's heart was not sold out to the Lord. They still did their religious festivals. They still sacrificed. They did everything. They would check off their worship of God like a checklist. But God knows. God sees the heart. He doesn't care about the external so much as he cares about the internal. He cares about what's in the heart. And the Israelites were masters of giving God lip service. They did the routine. They did the rituals. They did the festivals. But God knew their heart, their hearts were far from him. Israel was just giving the Lord lip service. God doesn't want false worship. God wants our hearts. He wants us. He wants what's inside of us, not just our externals, not just our external rote rituals. And Israel was the master of just giving God lip service and going to the festivals and then living 
any way they wanted outside of that. So that's one, Israel's false worship. Uh, then there's Israel's indulgence. Uh, Amos chapter 6 lays this out where we get this picture of Israel lying on bed, the Israelites lying on beds and adorned with ivory and lounge. Uh, they're dining on choice lambs and fattened calves. They strung away on their harps. They're enjoying music. They're drinking wine and the finest lotions. But they don't care about the things of God. They are living in luxury, in complacency. They feel comfortable. Does this remind us of any culture or society when we hear this? Right? They're living life. They're enjoying the fine wine, enjoying the fine life and the luxury. But in that complacency, their hearts have grown cold towards the Lord. Well, God's going to wake them up from their slumber in his judgment. And that's what he's calling out Israel for right here. And then um, another um, thing that we see as God's calling out Israel is really their oppression of the poor. And their perversion of justice. It's it's mentioned in chapter 2. We talked about that in the first section. It's mentioned again in chapter 8 of verse 4. How Israel continues um, to mistreat the marginalized and the oppressed. um, And God calls them out for that. um, Because one of the, the hallmarks of a people of God is to care for those who have no voice. To care for the oppressed and the marginalized and the poor. And Israel's not doing that. They're in their luxury. They're in their complacency. They're giving lip service, but they, their, their hearts have grown cold to God in every way. And yet through all of this, um, we still read that the posture of God is judgment. He's laying out judgment, but God's posture towards Israel is still to call them into repentance. Um, we read a little bit briefly in chapter 4 how God says, you know, I sent Israel, I sent you a famine. I sent you a drought. I sent you locusts and plagues, and yet you still didn't return to me. I used the forces of nature to bring you to your knees, and you still didn't come to me. You had all these opportunities and moments of suffering to turn to me, to repent, to trust in me again, and yet you refused. Just another way that we see God, how God uses various trials and moments of suffering to bring people unto himself. Does does this make you think, What has God used in my life to bring me to him? How does he use my suffering to bring me to him? How has he used moments and periods of my life to bring me back on the road to following him? It's an interesting thing to ponder. We also want to highlight some signs and visions that Amos highlights in these uh, passages of scripture uh, so we see here Israel is referenced to as a plumb line, as a basket of ripe fruit. Ripe fruit. Uh, we read about locusts, all these signs and visions. And your notes, by the way, for this lesson do a great job of, of explaining um, what each of these symbols means. But basically, it's um, basically stating that Israel was de- was ready to be judged by God. It's declaring that Israel was ripe for God's judgment. They didn't meet a standard of reality. They would experience a judgment that would wake them from their complacency and their wicked slumber. But nevertheless, even in the midst of this judgment, we still see that a common refrain is to seek the Lord and live. And we even read that right here in Amos. God declares, seek me and live. Even in the midst of judgment, God calls people unto himself. So with that, that gives us our second principle, which is that God offers life to all who humbly receive him. 
God offers life to all who humbly receive him. So after these reading, reading these verses, um, I think of two verses in the New Testament that continue to really just reveal God's heart and desire for sinners to find rescue in him. The first one was Jesus in Matthew chapter 23. And if you remember the life of Jesus, right, you think about the life of Jesus. He was rejected by his own people, rejected by the re- religious establishment of his day. Uh, and um, in this portion of Matthew 23, he's looking upon the city of Jerusalem, and he says this heart-wrenching verse. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. How about this verse from Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9, that the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slow, slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God's ultimate heart for the wandering soul is to bring him, them to himself. That is God's desire for sinners. So yes, we understand God is a God of infinite justice and infinite holiness, but he's also a God of infinite mercy and infinite grace. Where are you today? Where do you stand today? Do you feel lost and wandering? You know, whether you've been a seasoned believer or maybe you're still trying to understand what Christianity is all about and you've never made that commitment to Christ, hear Jesus' call today. It's the same for both of us, for both groups. Come to me. Seek me and live. Come to me just as you are. So with that in mind, let's unpack that a little bit more, and we'll unpack that in Division 3, which is the hope. This is, these are the verses that we really do want to focus on because with Jesus in his resurrection and in his cross and his resurrection, we are in this age of grace. We read in Scripture, today is the day of salvation. So this is our hope now in understanding God's promised restoration. And that's the name of our third division, which is Amos chapter 9, verses 11 through 15, God's promised restoration. All right, so we read up to this point, lots of judgment. God is laying his judgment down. He's, he's prophesying his judgment through Amos. But God does not leave us without hope. He concludes the book of Amos with a promise of restoring so with that, let's, let's, let me just read a few verses from you, starting in verse 11. Um, the Lord says through Amos, In that day I will restore David's fallen shelter. I will repair its broken walls and restore its ruins and will rebuild it as it used to be, so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord, who will do these things. I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them. So we hear all this judgment, but yet God promises, God says, even in the midst of all that, Israel, you will, there will be a day where you will never be uprooted from the land that I've given you. I will plant you in my own land. Your notes, by the way, for this lesson do a great job of highlighting that, you know, biblical prophecy is often for historical events that are about to happen. So, for example, um, you know, Amos prophesies about a a big earthquake that's really going to shake the foundations of Israel. But prophecy also is about historical future events. For example, much of the Old Testament prophesies about the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ, and also about his second coming when God makes all things new when he restores. We read in Revelation, right, that everything in human history is coming towards, is pointing towards Christ's second coming when all things are restored, when all things are made new, when there's a new heavens and a new earth. And scholars believe that this 
uh, particular part of scripture, especially when the Lord says never again to be uprooted from the land. It's a symbol perhaps pointing towards the second coming of Christ where God will make it a point where we're never uprooted. We are fully secure. We are fully made new and restored. That despite the wickedness and waywardness of the world around us, everything points towards his re- excuse me, God's ultimate redemption and ultimately Jesus' restoration of all things. So that's the hope um, that is being pointed to in Amos chapter 9, the last verses of Amos 9. That's the hope that we have today. And it brings us to our last principle, which is that God restores what sin seeks to destroy. God restores what sin seeks to destroy. So a few thoughts as we conclude. We've talked about it before, but one of the things that I love about BSF is that we study the full character of God. We study his perfect holiness, his perfect justice, but also his perfect and infinite mercy and his infinite grace. These attributes are not in conflict with one another. It's not an either or. It is a both, and they don't contradict That is who God is. The Bible beautifully relays this complex nature of our infinite God. And it's hard for our finite minds to comprehend who God is, but that's who he is. He is infinitely good. He is infinitely full of uh, justice, but he's also infinitely full of mercy. And we need his mercy. We need his infinite grace. And thank God that we live in the age of grace now. And I also want us to re- remember a few of those initial questions that I asked you to ponder at the beginning of this lecture. Um, you know, how would your life, for example, be different if you pondered, if you thought about that the God of the universe is pursuing you as a person? He pursues you. He knows you. He knows your name, and he pursues you. It's a common theme in Scripture. We read about God pursuing the Ninevites through the prophet Jonah. Um, We read about God pursuing Jonah as Jonah tries to flee away from God's calling. We even read about, especially in this book of Amos, even in the midst of Judah and Israel's waywardness, God says, seek me and live. That God is in the business of pursuing the lost. And I think about it in my life, right? And I'm sure I'm not the only one that does this. But when I think about that, I think about my past. I think about a lot of the time that I wasted whether it's bad decisions or poor choices that I made or the various sins that I struggle with, I think back on my life and I think, wow, I have wasted a lot of the time that God has given me. I've wasted it. I've squandered it. But I think about, for example, um, the first time I read the book of Amos. I, I first read Amos when I was a seventh grader at St. Joseph's School in El Paso, Texas. We had this incredible religion teacher by the name of Brother Philip. Um, and he's this incredible uh, theologian And uh, he was a great uh, religion teacher. And we actually read the Old Testament in seventh grade verse by verse. I mean, can you imagine that? What an incredible privilege at seventh grade to be reading God's word verse by verse. Now, do you think at seventh grade I was reading Amos with the same intent and the same understanding that I was now? Well, of course not, right? I was in, first of all, I was in seventh grade, so I was a dumb kid. Secondly, seventh grade religion class was from 2.15 to 3 p.m. right after P.E. It was the last class of the day. I wasn't thinking about Amos on a random afternoon during the week, right, at St. Joseph's School. I was thinking about what I was going to do after school. I was thinking about the food that I was going to eat. Who was going to pick me up after school? I was thinking about sports, <laughs> whatever it was. I wasn't thinking about the book of Amos. And it's a silly example, but I look back on that and I think, oh my gosh, what an opportunity. I had the opportunity to truly understand and read God's word 
at, at such a young age, and I, in some ways, I squandered it. But you know, I don't think honestly, I don't think that's a helpful perspective to have because we all have moments like that in our life when we look about time that we wasted. I don't think that's the perspective, frankly, that God wants to ha- wants us to have on life. See, even in those moments, I look back and I think, you know, God was pursuing me, a seventh grader. You know, even if I didn't think I was, uh, uh, I wasn't even listening, even if I thought I was daydreaming or doing whatever I was doing in seventh grade religion class, reading the book of Amos, the Bible tells us anytime we open his word, it never returns void. So something was being planted all those years ago. And maybe that's true in your life. Maybe you think about much more serious things than seventh grade religion class, right? But maybe you think about the poor choices you've made. You think about your failures. You think about your sin. You think about the, the things that you want to do over on, things you wish you would have done better. And you look, about those, look at those seasons in your life and you think, man, I wasted that. I wasted my life. Those, just, those are wasted seasons. While I don't think that's a helpful perspective to have, here's the reality. Here's why that's not a helpful perspective. Because the beauty and goodness of our God is that he says there are no wasted moments. He restores all things. He redeems all things. And by the way, he uses every season of life to bring us to himself. One of the incredible things that I think it takes a lifetime for us to understand is that God even uses our failures. God uses our bad decisions. God uses our sin to bring him to himself. It, it, we don't understand how he does that, but it's a beautiful truth, and I, I thank God for it, that he uses every season of life. He says there is not one wasted moment in my kingdom. Every step of your life was a step towards me. And it was him, it was him who was calling us to himself. What an incredible truth, right? God uses an earthquake to wake up and shake the foundations of Israel. He uses exile to bring, to wake his people up, to bring about his judgment, but also to bring about his repentance for his people. This is the way of God. Judgment is never without a purpose. So as we wrap up here, maybe you're, again, like I said, maybe you're a believer. Maybe you're a Christian. You're a follower of Christ. You've been a Christian for a long time. Or maybe you're exploring the claims of Christianity. Or maybe if you're honest today, you would say, you know, right now at this moment, if I were to die tomorrow, I would actually have no idea where I would spend eternity. I have no idea where I'd end up. Well, no matter where we are in life, the call of Jesus is the same. To come. Come to him. Come to me, seek me, and live as we read in Amos. And you know what? You know what's amazing? We don't have anything to bring to him, really. I mean, we read through Amos. Israel was trying to go through their religious festivals and their root routines. And God said, I don't want any of that. I don't want your rituals. I want your heart. I want you personally. And you think about, you want my heart? My heart is full of brokenness. My heart is full of sin and regret and anxiety and depression. And God says through his word, he speaks through us to us through his word. And he says, I want that. I want all of it. Bring me what you have. Bring me yourself just as you are. And I will give you a new life. I will give you a new heart through my son, Jesus. That is the promise that he gives us. What a beautiful promise. He takes what we've wasted and he makes it new. And maybe you're listening to this and you're thinking, oh my goodness, first of all, this, is, this doesn't apply to me. 
I mean, sure, this was about a prophet a long time ago and a people from a long time ago. But I've outsit. If you just knew my life, if you just knew the decisions that I made, you wouldn't be saying what you're saying. I've definitely outsinned God. You might be thinking. I have to take a pause here and say, wait a minute. What is this notion of outsinning God? You think you're too bad for God's grace? Well, do you think that you're worse than the Ninevites? that we read in the book of Jonah, the Ninevites were a pagan nation and brutally, brutally violent and actually brought upon violence to God's own people. And God still called them to repentance. All right? God still gave them a chance at salvation. Do you think you're worse than Judah or Israel? God's very own chosen people who witness God's faithfulness and power firsthand, yet generation after generation decided to follow after false gods and walk away from who God is and who he declared himself to be? You think you're worse than them? Look, it's not a competition, right? We're not trying to see who outsinned who. The bottom line is you haven't outsinned God's grace. You haven't outsinned God's mercy. And if you think you have, it's because you don't know how good and amazing and full of grace our God truly is. And it's incredible that we're talking about these themes as we enter Christmas week, right? Because I think we have to ponder that God is pursuing me. God knows me, my failure, my sin, and he pursues me personally. He knows me by name. And he pursues me. How does that change the way we think about ourselves? How does that change the way we think about who God is? He's not this distant divine being, but he is a personal God who has come to us through Jesus and he wants our heart. And how about this? Where do we need to find rest now in that calling? As he calls us to seek him, to seek him and live, where can we find rest in the midst of that calling? You know, I think for us, especially for us Christians, for, for those who have been walking with the Lord for a long time, um, we can allow our failures and our sin and our burdens to overwhelm the beauty of the gospel. And we forget, we forget the full forgiveness we have, the new life that we have, the reality that we are never going to be judged for our sin. Do you think about that? Have you th- thought about that? What the cross truly means? That Jesus has taken on every single sin, past, present, and future. And that we're never going to be judged for it because Christ took the punishment that you and I deserved. Do we understand that? We get burdened by our sins, but you know what? In reality, we should be living in the freedom that has already been secured for us in Christ. And again, like I said, maybe you're a seeker. Maybe you're somebody who is trying to understand the claims of Jesus, trying to understand who Jesus claims himself to be. Calls, you know, the call is the same. Come to him. Come to him and find the rescue and rest that you are looking for. Come to him and find the peace that you're looking for. Look, the reality is one day the rubber's going to meet the road. And for those who are outside of Christ, will have to give an account for their sin. You know, I like the way BSF puts it in another study uh, that we were um, actually studying through a couple years ago. It was in the notes. And I had to just, I did, I'll never for, I've never forgotten this line, but either you will have to bear your own sin burden, burden, either you will have to bear your own sin burden or Jesus will bear it for you. How amazing is it that Jesus bears the sin burden for us 
So what's preventing you from coming to Jesus now? Today is the day of salvation. If you're hearing this today, come to him. You can do it right now. You can just say, Lord, I bring you my heart. I bring you my heart full of the mess that it is and the brokenness that it is. And I come to you to make me new, to give me a new heart and to give me a new life. His call is open. Let's let's come to him. Let's take up his invitation. Let's seek him and live. As Jesus calls us to come, just as we are, let's do that. Let's come to him and let's find the rest that we're looking for. Let me pray for us as we wrap up. Lord, you are a good God. And we thank you, Lord, that you have preserved these words in Amos uh, to um, remind us of the reality of sin and the reality of your judgment, but also the reality of your infinite mercy and goodness and grace. Lord, um, may we hear your invitation, especially this Christmas season as we are approaching Christmas. Lord, we're filled with a lot of burdens, burdens that are really, if we're honest, are just crushing us. Lord God, remind us that you are the one who bears our burdens. You know us by name. You call us by name. Lord, may we hear your invitation and we, may we just come. We have nothing to bring you but our broken hearts. Lord, you gladly accept us, and may we do that before your cross. May we understand the beauty of your gospel, what you've done for us on that cross, and what you've done for us in that empty tomb in defeating sin and death. And may we get hope, hope restored. And we pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you all for listening. Thank you for allowing me to share God's word with you. God bless you guys. A Merry Christmas and Happy New Year.